0: Sorted SF, a podcast about San Francisco's forgotten past. Hi, and welcome back to Sorted SF season three. I'm your host, Monica, and I'm so excited to be back sharing more stories with you of my beloved San Francisco. This episode will be coming out on the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, which as we all know is one of the absolute worst things to happen in the United States in its entirety, lives were lost needlessly on the day and due to the attack carried on since then resulting in hundreds of thousands of lives lost. It's important to never forget these acts of terror and do whatever we can in our own little pockets of the world to quell radicalism and violence so we can build a more peaceful society. Today's episode will be focusing on an act of terror that took place right here in San Francisco back in 1916. So let's get into the Preparedness Day Bombing. My sources for this episode include Wikipedia and FoundSF. We'll start by setting the scene. It's 1916. My grandfather and his siblings are like nine and they're living some kind of childhood in San Francisco. Europe is about two years into World War I and the US is watching. Isolationism, otherwise known as the United States non-interventionalism was strong in San Francisco. As the name implies, this ideology meant that the U.S. sought to avoid alliances with other nations in order to prevent itself from being drawn into wars that were not related to the direct territorial self-defense of the U.S. Generally speaking, this was a bit of a fringe idea held by not only among radicals such as the industrial workers of the world, aka the Wobblies, but in this case also among mainstream labor leaders. At the same time, with the rise of Bolshevism and labor unrest, San Francisco's business community was nervous. Bolshevism is a Soviet Leninist and later Marxist-Leninist political thought and political regime. I know I studied European and Russian history in school, and I watched a bunch of videos about Bolshevism on YouTube, and I genuinely, for the life of me, can't wrap my head around the concept. So if anyone listening can break it down for me, please DM me. I just, I don't understand, and I want to. Regardless, the business community and the labor unions were mad at each other, which of course is a tale as old as time, but it was especially true in San Francisco in the summer of 1916. I tried to look up the average temperature of this time, but couldn't find one in my research, so let's just assume it was a nice pre-global warming temperature of 67. I know I said this was the preparedness day bombing, so let's figure out what even is preparedness. It all started in 1915. The preparedness movement argued that the United States needed to immediately build up strong naval and land forces for defensive purposes. World War I was going on, and it was kind of an unspoken assumption that the U.S. would have to fight sooner or later. An active duty army man, General Leonard Wood, ex-president Theodore Roosevelt, and a couple other guys were the driving forces behind the preparedness movement, along with a lot of the nation's most prominent bankers, industrialists, lawyers, and scions of prominent families. The preparedness movement had a realistic philosophy of world affairs. It believed that economic strength and military muscles were more decisive than idealistic crusades focused on causes like democracy and national self-determination. And this is kind of what shaped the U.S. as a military-focused nation, because up until this point in time, the U.S. didn't have too much of a military going for it. The preparedness movement highlighted the weak state of national defenses, because at the time, the American military only had a 100,000-person army, and even one augmented by the 112,000 National Guardsmen, The U.S. was outnumbered 20 to 1 by the German army. So to the boys leading into the movement, a.k.a. Roosevelt and General Wood, reform to them meant universal military training, otherwise known as conscription. Preparedness backers proposed a national service program under which the 600,000 men who turned 18 every year would be required to spend six months in military training, and afterwards be assigned to reserve units. The small regular army would primarily serve as a training agency. This proposal ultimately failed, but it fostered the Plattsburgh Movement, a series of summer training camps that in 1915 and 16 hosted some 40,000 men, largely of elite social classes. So there was a lot of opposition to this movement from the Socialist Party anti-militarists, and pacifists, which were strong in Protestant churches and women's group. Interestingly enough, another source of criticism of the preparedness movement was from America's enormous number of white ethnic immigrants and their descendants who didn't like the movement's demand for 100% Americanism, which, does that sound familiar? Criticism from the white ethnic circles occasionally argued that 100% Americanism really meant Anglophilia, a.k.a. English white. And at this time, there was also like a big push for English becoming America's national language. And so like, you know, Italians, um, for example, were like, no, (laughs) we're white, but we're not Anglo-Saxon, we're not Anglophiles. So that was kind of what was going on. While defenders of the movement retorted that military service was an essential duty of citizenship, and that without commonality provided by such service, the nation would splinter into antagonistic ethnic groups, one spokesman promised that UMT, Universal Military Training, would become a real melting pot, under which the fire is hot enough to fuse the elements into one common mass of Americanism. Furthermore, they promised the discipline and training would make for a better paid workforce. Hostility to military service was so strong at the time, it's difficult to imagine such a program winning winning approval, and it didn't. But underscoring its commitment, the preparedness movement set up and funded its own summer training camps where those 40,000 college alum became physically fit, learned to march and shoot, and ultimately provided um, a bunch of people qualified to be officers in the military. So interestingly, as you might've picked up, and maybe it's not so interesting, the only folks who were deemed acceptable to go to these military training camps were college grads who at this time obviously were generally the upper echelon of American society. Like obviously, you know, only the super wealthy could really send their kids to college. And those were the only people allowed to prepare and go train suggestions by labor unions that talented working class youth be invited to go to these training camps were ignored. So what happened was that the preparedness movement was distant not only from the working class, but also from the middle class leadership of most of small town America. The movement kind of shit on the already existing National Guard. Uh, The preparedness movement saw the National Guard as politicized, localized, poorly armed, ill-trained, too inclined to idealistic crusading, like it did against Spain in 1898, and too lacking in understanding of world affairs. However, the National Guard, on the other hand, was securely rooted in state and local politics, with representation from a very broad cross-section of American society. The National Guard was also one of the few institutions that, at least in some northern states, accepted African Americans on an equal footing with whites. So the TLDR of this is that the U.S. already had the National Guard out there training folks like they do today, but the preparedness movement thought that the National Guard wasn't doing enough and their mission wasn't like exactly nailing it on the head. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party and current President Woodrow Wilson saw the preparedness movement and its Republican leaders, Roosevelt, Root, and Wood, as a threat, as these men were all prospective Republican presidential candidates. More subtly, the Democrats were rooted in localism that appreciated the National Guard, and the voters were hostile to the rich and powerful in the first place. Working with the Democrats who controlled Congress, Wilson was able to sidetrack the preparedness forces. Army and Navy leaders were forced to testify before Congress that the effect that the nation's military was in excellent shape. To kind of appease the preparedness movement though, in 1915, Wilson instructed the army and navy to formulate plans for expansion. In November, he asked for far less than the experts said was needed, seeking an army of 400,000 volunteers at a time when European armies were 10 times as large, but none of the president's cabinet was really interested in growing the military. And to add to that, again, the general American ideal of non-interventionalism. And so, just nothing was getting done. The military was not going to expand. So, to recap what we know so far, preparedness wasn't looked kindly upon by a lot of the folks in the US, especially in San Francisco, which was, as it is now, a land of extreme wealth disparity with a very solid and vocal working class. Hitting the working folks harder was the dawn of mechanization. So, no longer did these laborers have control over like even our power grid, which they previously like manually were in charge of because now PG&;E came into play. So like their the labor union's power was already waning. Additionally, the unions became much more specialized instead of a general catch-all for all general laborers. But I guess that's progress, I don't know. So let's get into the day in question, the terror. The huge Preparedness Day Parade took place, and so the parades were held across the country to kind of just draw up interest and like, yeah, let's, you know, build our military, go U.S. It's like a pride, like a, you know, Americanist pride parade. Like 4th of July, but for war. Um, Okay. So the parade took place Saturday, July 22nd, 1916. In the weeks leading up to the parade, an unsigned anti-war pamphlet issued throughout the city read in part, We are going to use a little direct action on the 22nd to show that militarism can't be forced on us and our children without a violent protest. Labor leader Thomas Mooney had been tipped off to the threats, and it is best to stop it by pushing resolutions through his union, the Molders the San Francisco Central Labor Council, and the Building Trades Council, warning that provocateurs might attempt to blacken the labor movement by causing a disturbance at the parade. The parade was the largest ever held in the city. The 3.5-hour procession had 51,329 marchers, including 2,134 organizations and 52 bands. Military, civic, judicial, state, and municipal divisions marched and were followed by newspaper, telephone, telegraph, and streetcar unions. Many of the following divisions came from other cities of the San Francisco Bay Area. At 2.06, about half an hour into the parade, a time bomb in the form of a cast steel pipe filled with explosives detonated on the west side of Stewart Street, just south of Market Street, about 450 feet from the Ferry Building. So it's that street, when you're going down Market, you're facing the Ferry Building, and you have, it's kind of like the end of market. And then you cross over on the Embarcadero to like where the island is, the skate island. And like that's Embarcadero, so Stewart is just one up. Um, like you're if you're going down market, you're forced to turn on to Stewart. If you wanted to get down to the Embarcadero by car. So, uh, before capping the steel pipe containing the explosive which was believed to be either TNT or dynamite, the bomb maker had filled the pipe with metal slugs designed to act as shrapnel, greatly increasing the bomb's lethality. Ten bystanders were killed and 40 wounded, including a young girl who had her legs blown off. Witnesses differed on where the bomb was located. Some witnesses stated that they saw a man leaving a suitcase against the corner of a building at Market and Stewart Streets that contained the bomb, while others, such as Dr. Moore Moss, testified he saw the bomb being hurled or dropped from a roof of a nearby building rather than being left at the scene. There's actually video footage of, like, the immediate aftermath that I'll include on Insta. Because, um, you know, obviously with all the deaths and injuries, the cops were intent on catching those responsible for the bomb, kind of at whatever cost necessary. Led by the SFDA, Charles Fickert. Authorities initially focused their attention on several well-known radicals and anarchists in the city, among them a man named Alexander Berkman, who was well-known to the government for his radical politics and prior conviction as an attempted assassin. He had only recently relocated to San Francisco after being implicated in yet another bombing conspiracy the Lexington Avenue bombing in New York City, which resulted in the deaths of several anarchists and at least one innocent bystander. While in San Francisco, Berkman had begun his own anarchist journal, which he had named The Blast. After the Preparedness Day bombing, Berkman abruptly abandoned The Blast and returned to New York, rejoining a woman named Emma to work on the Mother Earth Bulletin. Fickert attempted to have Berkman extradited back to San Francisco on conspiracy charges related to the bombing, but was unsuccessful. Two known radical labor leaders, Thomas Mooney, who I mentioned previously as the one who told his unions, like, hey, don't do an attack. If you're planning on it, it's just going to, like, sour our movement. Um, And his assistant, Warren Billings, were actually eventually arrested for this bombing. Billings, convicted previously for carrying dynamite on a passenger train, had a reputation for enjoying direct action. And Mooney, a a militant socialist, had been arrested but never convicted for conspiring to dynamite power lines during the 1913 Pacific Gas and Electric Company strike. They also had held major strikes against United Railroads, which were super involved in local politics in the city, including the DA's office... Mooney and his wife had also previously been arrested for unsuccessfully attempting to stop streetcar operations during a planned streetcar motorman strike, and was known for being on the, quote, radical side of labor activists. The conservative leaders of local unions and editors of trade, labor trade papers disliked Mooney intensely, believing him to be a dangerous troublemaker whose methods never produced anything but trouble. It's quoted that Mooney, and especially Billings, both had prior knowledge of how to use dynamite. Police held Mooney incommunicado and without counsel for six days, which I'm pretty sure is illegal, uh, during which time they attempted to interrogate him. Mooney declined to speak, invoking his right to counsel some 41 times. At the grand jury proceedings, the suspects were still without counsel and were not permitted to shave or clean up before appearing for the grand jury. The defendants refused to testify in protest of being have denied counsel. After the grand jury returned, an indictment, Mooney and his wife, Warren Billings, Israel Weinberg, and Ed Nolan were all charged with murder. Um, those names, I couldn't really find too much about them um, other than they also were suspected. I think they were also just involved in the labor like movements. Fickert, the DA, alleged that Mooney had planted the suitcase at the bomb scene, which contained a dynamite bomb with a clock as a timing mechanism. Fickert and the police discounted the testimony of witnesses whose descriptions did not fit Mooney and Billings, or whose description of the bombing did not support the district attorney's theory that Mooney had planted the bomb. Mooney and Billings eventually retained a well-known San Francisco criminal attorney, Maxwell McNutt, as their defense counsel. In a set of trials, Billings was tried first in September 1916, which is kind of pretty immediate for being arrested late July. Uh, Thomas Mooney, however, had to wait until January 1917. Both were convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, Rena Mooney, his wife, and the others who had been arrested, including Israel and Ed, were acquitted and released after Mooney's conviction. Two years later, A mediation commission set up by President Woodrow Wilson found no clear evidence of Mooney's guilt and his death sentence was commuted. This was a huge deal, but it was far from over since, like, kind of what happened is he's not sentenced to death. They're just going to spend their entire lives in prison. Um, At San Quentin, the Mooney case and campaigns to free him became an international cause uh, for decades with a substantial Literature of publications demonstrating the falsity of the conviction. Evidence of perjury and false testimony at the trial became overwhelming. Because remember, like the tie, it was just so corrupt. Um, Serious corruption in the DA's office. So the false testimony perjury became overwhelming, but repeated efforts to reverse the convictions or give the men pardons were consistently blocked for 20 years until the election of progressive California governor Culbert Olson, who pardoned both men. Although the identity of the bomber or bombers has never been precisely determined, it has been attributed by several historians to anarchists espousing directly espousing direct action or propaganda of the deed. In addition to the language of the unsigned July warning leaflet, the Preparedness Day parade, had been organized by the Chamber of Commerce and the anti-union conservative business establishment to inspire patriotism and support for the U.S. entry into war, a development that could hardly fail to infuriate all and any anarchists. Besides Mooney and Billings, several persons are thought to have been capable of carrying out such a violent act, all of them anarchists and advocates of direct action. Others consider the bombing to be an act of an agent provocateur. Post-war research has led some historians to suspect involvement at some level in the bombing conspiracy by the anarchist Alexander Berkman, who I mentioned earlier as a suspect. He's the one who immediately fled his anarchist newspaper called The Blast um, and went right back to New York. However, whether he was involved in the conspiracy or not, it was... Almost not certainly him who constructed the actual bomb. He had no technical skills with explosives. So he could have been the ringleader, but he didn't actually make the bomb. Another suspect group included the Gallianists, radical anarchist followers of Luigi Galliani, particularly the elusive Mario Buda. Buda was a bomb maker, fit at least one witness's physical description of the bomber, and the group was known to utilize time bombs consisting of cast steel or iron pipes packed with dynamite and metal slugs or other types of shrapnel. While the Gallianists conducted most of their bomb attacks on the East Coast, there was a large and restive Italian anarchist community in San Francisco at this time, and many of them subscribed to uh, Galliani's journal, the Subversive Chronicle, which openly called for direct action via propaganda of the dead while glorifying the assassination of militarists and capitalists. So, uh, they were known for their ruthlessness in choosing targets, and they really uh, loved bomb. In 1919, they had unleashed a campaign of mail bombings to victims all over the country, including two booby trap bombs sent to Fickert, In San Francisco, the D.A. Uh, Galliani himself wrote that police had not arrested the right criminal, later telling investigators that he was positively sure with mathematical certitude that Mooney was not the bomber. And then there was another possible suspect, um, Selston Eklund, a well-known San Francisco radical orator, unemployed laborer and passionate anarchist who had been previously involved in a series of labor demonstrations and altercations with the cops um he died at the scene of a uh brawl with some cops in front of St. Peter and Paul's Catholic Church in San Francisco so like right at um what's the park called Washington Square Park in front of Salesian. uh he died at the scene and uh they never admitted to doing anything so um And so, yeah, that goes over the potential bombers. Um, Like I said, Mooney and Billings were acquitted and released from jail. And kind of as a fun tidbit, Billings, um, he, (laughs) once he got released from jail, ended up being a watch repairman because of all his time spent making time bombs. So he was really good at watches and fixing them. So I think that's like kind of cute, <laughs> as like a you know do something with your talents that doesn't hurt people. I think that's called rehabilitation. So it works. The prison system, <laughs> it works. Um, cool. All right. Well, that is that. That is the terror on the Embarcadero. Um, I mean, really awful that. I mean, 10 people were senselessly murdered um, and 40 others injured. I think, uh, I'd never heard of this until uh, a couple months ago when I was just like scrolling through looking for sordid SF shit. And yeah, I had no idea that there was ever anything that constituted a terror attack here. And I think it's, I think it speaks, honestly, a lot to the people of San Francisco, which, like I mentioned before, has always been such a place for the working class, as well as the ultra-wealthy. I think more so than a lot of other cities, just because, you know, we have the gold and the railroads, like, we're all kind of based out of San Francisco. But with the owners of the gold and the, the wealthy people, you know, then we had the actual miners and the laborers and there's always been such a strong blue collar community here and I think this was just you know strong evidence that that community's always been very vocal and uh yeah workers rights that kind of thing all right yeah so that's uh episode one um I hope everyone has a wonderful week I will be back next week with another episode because we are in season three now. And you're going to get notifications of new podcasts every week. And I'm going to continue to chat at you for months to come. And yeah, thanks.